Ready. All right. We're, we're, we're going to talk next with Sheila Olmsted. Sheila is um, an economist and a professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs here at the University of Texas. She's also a fellow with Resources for the Future and with the Property and, and Environment Research Center. Her work focuses on environmental and natural resource economics. She also served on the President's Council of Economic Advisors from a period spanning the summer of 2016 to the summer of 2017. So she was there during the transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration and gives her a unique perspective on some of the issues we're going to talk about. So right now it's just a little bit before the 2018 midterms. The Trump administration um, has tried to roll back a number of the Obama administration rules uh, and particularly those targeting the fossil fuel industry, including the mercury rule, the cross-state air pollution rule, the clean power plan, among others. And even more fundamentally than that, they have challenged the way previous administrations have estimated or quantified environmental benefits from air pollution reductions in analyses of rules like the ones I, I mentioned. So I, I want to start uh, our conversation today by talking about their approach to measuring what we call the co-benefits of reducing pollutants under these and other uh, uh, rules that um, EPA has passed in the past, sorry, enacted in the past, let's say it that way. Um, mainly how we quantify averted deaths and illnesses from reducing emissions of fine particles, say from coal-fired power plants. So um, the Trump EPA has challenged some of the epidemiological science at the heart of those estimates. Is that right? Yes, that's yeah. right. Could you explain their substantive objection to those studies as or their use by previous administrations? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think they have two general categories of substantive objections. I mean, the first um, has been this um, what's been dubbed this sort of secret science uh, problem, a transparency issue that they, at least the way that they've described it, in which they would say that the epidemiological studies that underpin a lot of the you know, major benefit estimates for everything from the National Ambient Air Quality Standards to you know, pieces, you know, kind of Clean Air Act uh, regulations such as the Clean Power Plan and uh, methane rules and so on. Um, and the argument is that you know, these uh, studies were published using public health data um, that can't legally be made generally available because of privacy concerns. Um, and so it, you know, not anybody can just go and, and replicate these studies. And replication obviously is a really important um, kind of criterion for validity in the sciences. And so they've sort of put their finger on this as a, a major problem and one that they want to avoid. And the idea is that they'll then, you know, they'll uh, sort of have a regulatory impact analysis process that would either heavily discount or entirely throw out um, right, any, um, any such estimates that were generated right, from data that are uh, essentially private data. Um, and there was sort of a, a sh the initial shot over the bow on this um, was uh, this April uh, sort of draft that pr uh, previous administrator uh, Pruitt submitted to OIRA, this uh, part of the uh, Office of Management and Budget um, at, at the, in the White House that manages the regulatory uh, review process. Um, where, you know, he, he sort of stated his intention to do this. And it was reported in the press, not confirmed, but then later, you know, kind of confirmed. So we, so we have a sense uh, for where that's headed. And then I think their second substantive objective, uh, objection is simply this idea of incorporating um, benefits that accrue in areas other than the direct target of the regulations. So if you take something like the Clean Power Plan, uh, I think as Dave mentioned earlier, if you look at the regulatory impact analysis for that rule, the, the initial uh, proposal, the vast majority of the benefits of reducing greenhouse gas emissions 
um, you know, under the Clean Power Plan would have come from these reductions, these kind of co-reductions in local and regional air pollutants that reduce uh, incidence of premature mortality and morbidity among humans um, rather than from the climate benefits itself. And so their view is, no, no, that's not right how it should be done. We should only look at climate benefits if it's a climate rule. We should only look at uh, right sort of local air pollution benefits if it's a max standard and so on. Um, so those are sort of the two, I think, the two categories of objections that would you know, if they really went forward in, in, uh, in a substantive way, would uh, fairly dramatically change um, both the magnitude of the estimates um, that we look at then and, and then, of course, the balance of estimates between benefits and costs. And my understanding is that they, uh, in addition to the transparency problem that they allege with these uh, the epidemiological studies, they also make some uh, criticisms of the studies themselves on their merits. Is that right? They do. Um, they do. And I, this is one area that's just tough, right? If you're a scholar and a scientist, you're an epidemiologist or an atmospheric chemist, or, I mean, it's not just epidemiology that usually is involved in these kinds of studies that underpin, you know, the basic estimates of the physical impacts of air pollution on people. Um, you know, you would always want, right, that's why you're in that for your career, you want sort of more and better estimates of those kinds of impacts. And so, um, you know, merely the search for more and better estimates, I think, is, is warranted. It's a good thing. I think there certainly have been critiques of some of these studies that have been out there. Um, but I think it's tricky, right? It's not as though they haven't been replicated. So if you take, for example, one of the major studies that underpins our estimates of mortality benefits from regulating fine particulates, for example, which is a big issue for, with coal combustion, um, that's a study by Dockery et al. from 1993. It was often called, uh, in shorthand, the Harvard Six City Study. It was the first to establish a relationship between um, urban air, you know, uh, deaths and air pollution in the United States. Um, you know, that study was replicated by a whole nother set of researchers, right, that then got access or legal access to the data, you know, found substantively very much, you know, results that were quite similar to what the original researchers had found. Um, so there is a process of replication for many of those key studies, especially the ones that are going to really kind of come under fire um, in processes like, like this one. Um, it's just that, right, you can't, right, that doesn't mean that, right, anybody, you know, someone at, at the Heritage Foundation or the Cato Institute or something can just go download the data, right, and run their own analysis. And it's just simply not possible to do that with these kinds of private public health data. And in fact, if you did, you would just destroy the whole kind of research enterprise <laughs> in epidemia and public health, which allows people to, right, submit those kinds of data with the knowledge that, you know, they would not be identifiable, that, you know, you, you know certain pieces of information wouldn't um, fall into public hands. So, um so in that sense, it's it's challenging, right? It's you know everybody would like everybody in the sciences, I think, would like more and better data, and I think you know discussion of those points on which that's warranted is helpful. But it's very hard to read the transparency argument as anything other than right a sort of blatant uh, kind of grab at trying to reduce benefit estimates um, when what it means is literally throwing out the kind of best available studies uh, you know that establish these these links that are the reasons that we um, are actually promulgating these rules. It looks like a pretext. It does. It, it can't help but look like a pretext. And in fact, um, you know, one of the challenges, too, is that even if you pick on individual studies, I mean, what we have now is really a kind of a canon of work of a really large set of studies that establish these kinds of relationships, including both the key, you know, sort of keystone uh, ones uh, in, that have been taken into account in existing regulatory impact analyses, and many, many, many more. There's a nice study in 2013 uh, out of MIT that estimates that in the U.S. we still have about 200,000 premature deaths as a result of air pollution every year, um, and that 
that's about half from, uh, from uh, power generation, mostly coal combustion, and from transportation emissions, and that the average individual that dies prematurely as a result of air pollution in the United States dies about 10 years earlier than they otherwise uh, would have. And it turns out that when you take those kinds of studies and you put on the kind of monetization piece, the part where it, it's economists' job to pick up the, the pail, people have a high willingness to pay to avoid those kinds of impacts. And that is a sort of inescapable fact that's, you know, is to the great frustration, I think, of, um, you know, folks, uh, you know, both under Andrew Wheeler's EPA and under Scott Pruitt's EPA, very hard to get around. You know, it's hard to make an intellectually defensible benefit cost analysis that, that doesn't suggest that um, air pollution has large mortality impacts that people value very highly. So is there a body of literature, if you were to remove all of the uh, studies that don't qualify under the secret science rule, that the Pruitt rule, um, is there a body of literature that would allow you to make an estimate and how would it change the estimates? That is an excellent question. It's probably better put to an epidemiologist or an atmospheric chemist than to me. What I would say is I think one of the things that's interesting about this transparency debate is it's on hold almost precisely because folks on the new, so you may or may not be aware that um, Administrator Pruitt also replaced a large fraction of, of EPA's science advisory board, which is the board of scholars that is meant to kind of comment on these kinds of aspects of benefit-cost analyses and which studies to include and which ones not to include. And in fact, when this uh, issue was kicked to the SAB, you know, industry folks on the SAB said, hey, there's a lot of industry studies for which we couldn't, you know, you can't release the data either. And so, you know, they, they weren't very happy about that either. And in fact, I think that's in, in large part why it's, um, why it's still on hold. So I think it hurts, you know, if you think of this as a politicized process, which unfortunately, I mean, I wish it, I, it weren't, but it seems as though it is, um, you know, I think it hurts kind of people on both sides of that process as well. And I don't know what would be left, right? Is there sort of a middle group of studies where there's enough observational data that we could say we can come up with plausibly causal estimates of impacts? I, I really don't know. So, but either way, in a way, right, if your objective is to, is to not regulate or to deregulate, then you, if you can get the estimate much lower, you can do that. Or if you can say, I'm sorry, we can't estimate, right, you can still do that. So, um, so I don't think it's, terribly important, right, yeah. kind of how, how far that needle uh, moves. On your second point, um, uh, uh, for limiting your assessment of, or your measurement of benefits yeah. to the target pollutants. Um, so just to re just sort of remind us, how would that change the cost-benefit analyses of the sort of major uh, rules the Obama EPA yeah. passed that address uh, fossil fuel power plants? For sure, if you look at something like the Clean Power Plan, I mean, CAFE standards is a little trickier because such a large portion of the benefits is sort of, in a way, is negative cost, avoided fuel consumption um, in time and so on. Um, but it, it would be, it would be, it's the big ticket item. I mean, it's the way, and it's it's interesting, right? So, so two things on that. One, I would say that when the administration first came in, the initial proposal to repeal the Clean Power Plan really did, it sort of, it first went after, it first changed the social cost of carbon estimates, right? This kind of dollars per ton estimate of the climate impacts translated into dollars in ways that we can certainly talk about in the Q&A. Um, it, it knocked those down through a series of, of different assumptions than the prior administration had made very significantly, right? From about $42 per ton down to between $1 and $7 per ton. And I, you know, could take issue with some of those changes, but not all of them. I think reasonable people can disagree over what the magnitude of the, the right estimate there is. 
But not surprisingly, because that was not actually a large part of the net benefit of the, um, the Clean Power Plan, they couldn't get even close to a point where repealing the Clean Power Plan would actually have net benefits for the U.S. economy relative to having the Clean Power Plan in place because the estimated net benefits of the old Clean Power Plan were so significant and because they were so much about these avoided uh, premature deaths um, and avoided illnesses. And so that, again, this, this is part of that, you know, sense that this is coming, right, because they sort of took down the one estimate, couldn't get it down far enough, right, and so now, you know, here we are and, and we're just going to try on another, another front. Um, that's perhaps somewhat more controversial and more visible because people are maybe more aware of, uh, you know, sort of local air pollution impacts and more concerned about that than they are about, about climate change. Um, so that's, I think, the first thing I would say. The second is that um, this proposed policy of simply not estimating, right, a bunch of the actual benefits of or the estimated benefits of, of these kinds of rules, it contravenes basic economic theory and the practice of benefit cost analysis. It contravenes the Office of Management of Budgets and EPA's own guidance documents on regulatory impact analysis. It contravenes case law that suggests that all of the benefits of these kinds of policies need to be considered. And it's just uh, kind of intellectually dishonest, right, in a way to, to say, you know, uh, we're going to consider uh, no indirect benefits, right, from our tallying of benefits and costs, um, but not doing something similar on the cost side. This is, I think, so funny. My colleague, Alan Krupnik at RFF, has pointed out that EPA would still insist, for example, on tallying the ancillary health damages that would occur due to job losses that are induced by the regulatory changes. Mm -hmm but not, right, the, the health damages that are induced or health improvements that are induced by the reductions in pollution. So that's, again, where it feels like there's, this is definitely not coming from a genuine concern, right, about the, the you know, correct design of a benefit-cost analysis, but coming from a place in which we simply want to make the numbers look different um, than they did before. Are there... Uh, you, you've worked on these issues not just in connection with air pollution rules. So are there other... Are there other elements of the Trump administration critique or the Trump administration practice that you, that have particular merit or that are particularly objectionable that we, yeah. you'd like to comment on? Because we've been focusing only on power yeah. plants. Yeah, so I mean, there are plenty of good critiques of the American regulatory system and of benefit-cost analysis in, in the regulatory system. And, you know, part of my job when I was in the White House was to do reviews, right, of all of these different you know, uh, rules that were coming through at the end of the Obama administration and the beginning of the Trump administration, many, many more at the end of the Obama administration than at the beginning of Trump. Um, and you see a lot of stinkers, you know, like sort of smallish rules where the, the actual analysis, you know, you really, really take issue, right, just from an economic perspective about either how the benefits were tallied or how the costs were tallied or what was left out. And, um, and you see, you know, that there's really an incredible range of these, the quality of these studies. And so I think, you know, a critique of that is really, I mean, it, it's been out there for a long time. Um, and this idea that what we need to do is a lot more retrospective analysis, right? So all of these analyses are done by agencies prior to a rule being uh, promulgated um, by administrations. And then we very rarely go back and shine a light on what actually happened, where, where we actually could, right? We could do that. We could look at actual causal impacts rather than estimated, um, you know, impacts. And so, um, there are a lot of really good things that one could do in an effort to, you know, in this sort of technocratic way, further rationalize the U.S. regulatory system if you really wanted to use benefits and costs to do that. And I actually think in the beginning of the administration, I mean, literally weeks after the inauguration, we had a couple of executive orders that teed up 
a process that I think was thoughtful, right, about how this could be done. And this came, you know, again, we could talk in the Q&A about where I think this came from, but some executive orders that would set up kind of regulatory budgets, um, you know, for agencies. It was just on the cost side, not on the benefit side. So, you know, again, design-wise, we might take issue around the margins, but setting up regulatory reform task force within each of these agencies um, and so on where you could actually see that you could put in place a mechanism where folks within agencies were supposed to be sort of identifying, you know, some of rules that if, you know, you're going to promulgate a new one and you have to meet an annual budget on the cost side that you would have to relax then or take away some of these older regulations that might now, right, knowing um, now that they're in place and we can actually see what they've done, uh, might not actually not be as good as we might have thought they, they were originally. So I think that that was really in the right place, right, sort of think, um, thinking about those kinds of um, changes to the way we think about regulation uh, were in the right place. But then very shortly after that, we see executive orders mentioning specific rules, right, like the Clean Power Plan, like the methane rules, like the Water of the United States rule, and directing agencies to focus on those rules in particular um, that I mentioned earlier, where a lot of these rules, as I said, the sort of smaller ones, we might critique the, the analysis, and I might even say, hey, you know, benefits definitely don't exceed cost, even though right, it went forward and it said they did. But for the most part, it would be very hard to say that about the real big ticket rules. Those, I mean, when the ones like the CAFE standard CPP, right, these things go through such vetting and the agencies get killed over even the smallest, you know, uh, sort of questionable assumptions in their analysis in the public comment period and, and, and in every other way. Um, and, you know, frankly, those, those rules show, you know, the ones that are specifically named in these executive orders for reconsideration, it's very hard for anybody, right, to show that, you know, to really reverse the, you know, kind of balance of benefits and costs. Change it around the margins for sure, but really show that something that had dramatic, you know, in the tens of billions of dollars of net benefits is, is going to somehow have net costs is hard to do. And this is why, right, again, this movement toward, um, you know, oh, well, let's find other pieces of the, you know, the system that we can tinker with and see if we can get smaller numbers, and which is the part that, uh, you know, it would be much preferable to me. When, when you think about the way that the CPP repeal first came through, it literally said, you know, look, this looks like it's on average is going to have net costs. But I think it's intellectually much more preferable to say, you know, it's going to have net costs, but we're doing it anyway because we want to, you know, help the coal miners or we want to, right, mm -hmm. we, we have another, a different objective we're trying to achieve. So much more preferable, right, to do that than to say, oh, let's just go in and sort of jigger with the numbers, numbers yeah. right? Because, because it just, you know, creates a process in which people can now say, oh, benefit cost analysis, right? This is just a bunch of garbage. And, you know, if you just tinker with the assumptions, you get a different answer. Well, of course, if you tinker with the assumptions, you get a different answer. It's just some assumptions are really bad. Right? <laughs> some are based in science, and you'd like to stick with the ones based in science and then just use it. It doesn't have to determine, right, whether the regulation goes forward or not. But at least it provides the transparent information over which we can have a discussion, you know, and then we can decide to do something that's quite different. So stepping away from the sort of political interference in the process, it sounds as though from what you said earlier that you have a sort of generally positive, don't let me put words in your mouth, a positive uh, view of OIRA review of these things, of these rules? I do. I mean, I, I, it's challenging because what happens in the OIRA review is that, right, everybody who's kind of giving, so there are, you know, lots of OMB people giving input and guidance to the agencies, but then there are folks from CEA, the Small Business Administration, NSC, sort of all these different components of the White House participating in the review. And so what ends up happening is, right, lots of meetings and meetings, and you filter down to sort of a, a handful of um, 
you know, kind of key issues that the OMB is basically going to go back to the agency with and insist, right, or try to push, you know, for, for them to change. But at that level, then it's still kind of the OIRA administrator versus the agency head. And if it gets to that level where it just can't be resolved, then it goes to the president and, and you know, the president and his senior advisors who then, you know, kind of get to make the call. And so I, I like that, you know, that, you know, certainly the economists, we go to the mat a lot but we don't always win. In fact, I'd say we often, <laughs> we often lose, more often than not, um, and, you know, to an agency administrator or to, uh, to somebody else. Um, and, but I think that's okay, right? I think what you want is you want, right, and that's all in the comment, you know, stuff. That's all in the record. It's in the public record, and that's fantastic, right, because anybody who has a critique can go back and see, you know, whether that was something that was heard and considered, um, and, and frankly, you know, most economists, not all, but most would say we probably shouldn't make decisions based on right, benefits versus cost alone, given all kinds of uncertainties and so on in those, in those estimates. So, um, so what I saw was both technocratic, you know, very focused on are the details right, and also democratic in the sense that, right, there's sort of all these different parties that have input to how, how, um, how the analysis, both how it should be done and how it should be used to make the decision of whether to go forward or not. And I think that's appropriate. Great. Thanks very much.